Right, this is the 9th of January, 2017. With questions and answers, or maybe we'll put this up here. What happens during your chanting as it develops? Do you reach something other than physical reality? To the second question, yes. Definitely. But that's not only true for chanting, it's true for any of the things we do in bhakti yoga. And there's a lot of explanations by different acharyas or teachers of the stages that one goes through in chanting. We should keep in mind, now I wish I had a board or something I could write on. I do? Like, I really do have a board I can write on? Seriously? Oh my God. You just say, I want a board, and then it just manifests. Which side? That side? Or this side? This side. You can cover up the, the guy sweating in anxiety over there. It really bugs me. It's like, I feel like I'm going in and saying, it's okay, it's okay. Now, do we have a pen? Do we have pens and erasers? But we have a board. Good start. Uh, one thing to keep in mind whenever you read these descriptions of the stages of progression is that we are... Yes, does it work? Sort of, kind of? Is that another sort of, kind of? They're both sort of, kind of? I can go look for some, but I can leave the red seems to be something. Okay. So that all of these descriptions of the stages of what happens when you chant, they're, they're general and we're all... Those are, that's probably we should trash that one so nobody thinks it, <laughs> nobody picks it up again and thinks it works. And do we have an eraser or do I just like use the end of my story? I'll get a paper towel. Paper towel, okay. So different stages are described, you know, that one that you get faith and then you want to change your friends. that some of the people that you hang out with all of a sudden seem phony and superficial to you and you don't want to hang out with them anymore. Uh, at that stage, oh, there's some people that just back out and say, whoa, I don't want to do this. You know, you, you start wanting to have spiritually inclined friends and then you start making changes in your life that you start saying, hey, you know, I think I really want to take up some kind of regular process and regular practice. I, I really want to make spirituality part of my life. And you start getting rid of things that are a hindrance and you start taking on things. Oh, do we have something? Does this work a little bit better than sort of kind of? This is a new one. A new one? Oh, my God. Look at that. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> and then from that... You go through a, a very interesting stage. These are all, this, these stages here are all mostly just, <coughs> wow, I'm seeing things I didn't see before, I'm understanding things I didn't understand before, things make so much sense to me. They're, they're a, a very exciting discovery stage. And then, then you come to a stage of, we could say, how would you call this, cleaning. Um, now, at any one of these stages, sometimes people get scared and back off. They say, well, you know, I, I really didn't want to, like, change my life. At this stage, you start, uh, what starts surfacing is inner stuff. This is mostly outer stuff. Where you, you start thinking here, hey, 
I, I want to be with other people who are deep. And I'm not sure if I want to be with that person anymore. And here is, I want to start taking a spiritual practice seriously. I, I, it's not just, I don't want it to be a hobby anymore. I want it to be serious. And here, stuff starts coming up from inside. You start seeing things inside about yourself that you didn't see before. And some of those are really wonderful, exciting things, and some of those are really <coughs> ugly things. You start seeing the truth about yourself. And our real self is a spiritual self, so everything about the real spiritual self is beautiful and exciting. But our real spiritual self has also kind of gone swimming in a cesspool, and, and you start seeing that too. And definitely at this point, a lot of people run away. It's interesting, when I started chanting, nobody told me about that at all. Nobody warned me that that would happen at some point. And I see a lot of people, when that happens, they go, whoa, this wasn't what I bargained for. But it's, it's something like, um, you know, you have oil paintings of, of, of some old master, and they got dirty and discolored and then an expert comes and cleans it. And you clean it and you see under it. But in order to, to see under it, you have to distinguish between the actual painting and the dirt. Or if you've ever seen really tarnished silver and it looks black. And in order to clean it, you have to distinguish between the tarnish and the silver. So that's kind of what's happening here. And the first part of this stage is, can be kind of intense, and then it becomes extremely, incredibly delightful. Because more and more of the actual self starts to be revealed. So those who go through that stage, and you can go through it very quickly if you like, although most people don't. Uh, you could. Then from there comes goodness. At this point, and then this is the kind of state that a lot of people who engage in, in any kind of spiritual or meditative or contemplative practice talk about, where the mind is basically in goodness, which is the factory default, you could say, for the mind. That passion and, and ignorance, are they may still be there, but they, they're not a disturbance anymore. They're, they become very minimal. And their, their disturbance in one's life is, is very, very minimal. And at this point, I mean, here spiritual life is very joyful because it's so new and exciting and relevatory. And here spiritual life is joyful because you've really gotten to the, the essence of the thing. You, you've started to really touch the essence of the thing. Not just every once in a while. Here it's more like every, but here it's, a, it's pretty much a constant this stage is also called being fixed or being stable. And then from there, things generally accelerate very quickly, and there's no longer an effort. You're no longer making something. You're it's like if you go up a hill, you know, you take your bicycle up a hill and then you ride it down. So this is the here you're kind of at the top of the hill, and then you're just gliding. So after this, you start feeling just in incredible happiness. And then this, you start the awakening of, of spiritual love. And then full ecstasy. And then full realization. I don't think this was a new 
So this is one description. Um, I've identified 21 different descriptions in our Vedic literature and the works of, of the particular teachers in our line. So 21 different descriptions of what happens as you go through the process. And I see that they're describing things from a different angle of vision. Now, this is probably the most holistic description, but there are others that describe just certain parts of the process. But to keep in mind that we're not, um, we're, we're not mathematical formulas, we're people, and you can't really put this into little boxes. So this is more a general guide, but it's not some sort of absolute something. And I know, uh, like I spent 27 years teaching children and, and teenagers, and you can, you can talk about how a person progresses in learning how to read or how a person progresses in learning mathematics. But when you're dealing with an actual person, nobody progresses exactly the way it says in the books. Nobody. You know, everyone has some variance on it. And some people just jump around. And then you'll find people may have, you know, a little bit of some higher stage even in a lower stage, and they may have a little bit of a lower stage even in a higher stage. We're not just boxes. And yes, ultimately one reaches the ultimate reality. But that's, that starts becoming obvious right at the beginning. Right at the beginning of a practice of any, any genuine spiritual practice. And we're not the only ones teaching a genuine spiritual practice. But any genuine spiritual practice, one of the evidences that it's genuine is that you're going to be accessing spiritual reality at least a little bit right at the beginning. There's something where you go, whoa. This is very different than all of my material experiences. It has a very different quality to it. But the idea of a spiritual practice is that you ultimately access a spiritual reality in full. So that was a cool question to start. Why as God-conscious beings do we allow ourselves... Okay, this is the question. Do we allow ourselves to be entrapped in the material realm, and why do we not have the foresight and wisdom to avoid this predicament, given that we are trying to revive this state of being? So this is, I'd say, this is the biggest doubt. And if you look at different traditions that try to answer this question, why are we here in a far less than ideal state? And there's no sugarcoating and there's no philosophizing you can do to say that we are in an ideal state. There's just, there's just no way. So what are we doing in a less than ideal state with ideal aspirations, basically? As, as uh, C.S. Lewis said, if we have desires that are not part of this world, then maybe we're not beings of this world. And there's universal desires for unlimited happiness and unlimited knowledge and unlimited eternality in full health and vigor. I mean, we have this, everybody wants that. But that's not what we experience. So why would beings who have as their natural state, why would we all want it if it wasn't our natural state is the first question. Just like there are creatures in the desert who don't have a desire to drink water because they have bodies designed for living in a desert. But if I go to a desert, I'm thirsty. So why would beings who have this natural desire be in an unnatural state? And different traditions try to answer this in different ways. But you'll find that generally the, the answer is it's our choice. 
I mean, no matter what tradition you look at, whether it's in some kind of parable, like there was, you know, an Adam and Eve in a garden, if there was, if, if it's put like that, or like Jesus talks about the prodigal son, I mean, however, however they may couch it, it comes down to a choice. And then we say, why in the world, if, if I am a spiritual being full of knowledge and full of bliss and full of eternity, would I have chosen this? And I don't know if my answer will really satisfy you. Part of my answer to this is that that answer unfolds as you progress in realization. Because the answer to it involves um, some humility. And in, until one accesses that humility, the answer doesn't make any sense. So I can tell you exactly when in my life the answer to this question made sense to me. But it was an experience. It was an ex experiential situation that it makes sense to me. It wasn't an intellectual thing that it made sense to me. So I can just describe this in a logical, intellectual way, but I'll tell you frankly that it didn't make any sense to me until I had an experience. And I, I actually experienced that it was my choice. And I experienced the depth of the absurdity of that being my choice. I, I could see it and I could feel that it was my choice. And I could see that it was not just my choice in some sort of cosmic distant time, but it was in fact my choice at every moment that I was choosing illusion over, over truth. And it was, a, it, was a very, it was a very intense experience but it was also a very sweet experience because seeing things honestly is, is very sweet even if it involves some um, catharsis. On the logical level, are the way that, that my own spiritual teacher explained this is that when we first enter into illusion, it's very slight. The covering is very slight and it's more just that the soul has a desire hey, there's only one thing I can't experience in my perfection. In our, in our perfected state, the only thing we can't experience is to try to have an enjoyment with absolute separation from the spiritual whole. That, that's because that's not true. <laughs> Although we're eternally an individual, we're also eternally joined to, to the spiritual whole. So that we have the ability to have that curiosity. Could I experience this bliss and this knowledge being only separate? Not being both separate and united, but being only separate. And I think it's very similar to when I was eight years old and I wrote my parents a letter and I said, I'm running away from home. He said, but don't call the police because I'll be back later. So it was this... You know, this kind of thing where you think, I really did do that. You know, where, where you, you wonder, the little child wonders. And as I said, I was a teacher of children for so many years. And there's a lot of children's books like this, of the kid who divorces their family. You know, there's, there's a lot of children's stories like this. The young child who says, you know, I'm going to make it on my own without my family. And what do the parents usually do if they're enlightened parents? not spiritually enlightened, you know, but if they're wise parents, they usually say to the kid, okay, you know, try it out. 
you can camp in the backyard and, you know, see how it goes. And generally, after a very short time, the child says, I want my mommy, you know. So it, it's like that, that we, have, we, want it, we want to see. And our first experience with illusion is very light, that we're not that covered. And what's described in the, in the Vedic scriptures is that we get to be the god of a universe, in effect. We get a universe that we can manage and we can create and we can control. I find it very fascinating that the aspiration of the Mormons is to be a god of the universe. That's what they aspire to as their perfection, which our scriptures describe as the first fall, the first element to fall. Okay, you know, yeah, sure. Here you have it. There's no, you know, your covering is very slight. And I would assume that most spiritual beings in that state go, oops, wasn't quite what I wanted. And they'll let me return. And then others say, oh, you know, it's not that bad. I think it's very much like if a person's, you know, brought up without any kind of alcohol or, and they're told, don't drink alcohol, it's bad for you. And then they go to a party and they have one beer and they say, oh, that's not so bad. It's just kind of fun. And it's not that they go from never drinking to immediately being an alcoholic lying in their vomit in the gutter. It's not that that happens in 24 hours. But it's, it's a very gradual decline. And there are a lot of people along the way who say, hey, wait a minute, this really isn't so great. Let me go back to sobriety. Can I get some water? So to come to this planet, I mean, what's described in the, in the scriptures is that this is the lowest of the middle planets. And we're here in the cosmic winter called Kali Yuga. So this is actually, of all the, the different bodies we could inhabit, it's pretty far down there. We're just kind of barely out of the lower range. And if we compare our current state to a spiritually awakened state, it's so far up there, we're like, well. But we didn't get here immediately. It was gradual incarnation down so that's the logical explanation, that it's very gradual. No, none of us would have chosen our current state directly from the spiritual atmosphere. There's no way. Like nobody would choose to go from sobriety to immediately lying in, your, in the gutter in your vomit. No, that's not, it wouldn't go that far. Um, what specific signs can we, well, I think I'll do that. Oh, thank you so much. In case I don't have time to get to everything. Excellent. I hope that satisfies at least intellectually. Uh, but I will say that I don't, I don't think the real satisfaction of that question can come except through experiential. Which is one of the reasons my own spiritual teacher said, don't get hung up on that question. He said, if there's a fire in the house, get out. And, and later you can worry about what started the fire. When the house is on fire, you don't have a theoretical discussion about what started the fire. Get addicted to being in illusion? Sort of, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you could really compare it like that. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. We, get, we get habituated to it. And we, we, we forget. It's, it's very much like that. And then we have to struggle to get out of it, which is such a shame. You know, and is that necessary? No, it's not necessary. It's not necessary at all. And we could have... You can just play with illusion a little bit and then go back, but once you start playing with it and playing with it and playing it to the point that you take this kind of birth on this planet, in this body, it's gone. 
So yeah, we look all the, you know you look all the way from here to the top of the stairs, and you're like, how did I come that far? But when it's just, yeah, come on, you know, it's like we'll 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 sacrifice some ideal or some something, and you know you're exercising seven days a week, and then you cut down to six days. Well, that's not so much different. You know, it's almost seven days. And pretty soon you're not exercising at all. But it was a very gradual, and each step didn't seem like such a big jump if you just look up one step. But then when you look all the way at the top and you go, whoa, how did I do that? Sometimes I doubt the spiritual master from what my senses seemingly show me, that he can appear discontent, disinterested. How is a spiritual master supposed to be? I don't know if they are in full Krishna consciousness. Is it a prerequisite? Whoa, this is a long question. Um, First of all, spiritual master isn't God. They're also an embodied being. Uh, Should a spiritual master be in full Krishna consciousness? One should have at least connection with one being who's in full Krishna consciousness. Could one have a spiritual teacher who wasn't absolutely in full Krishna consciousness? Yes, as long as they're ahead of you on the path and as long as they're going forward. Do all of our spiritual teachers need to be fully, totally, completely at the ultimate reality? No, as long as they're ahead of us. It's just, if you're only in in sixth grade, you don't need a PhD teacher. But we are advised to have association with someone who's enlightened. And that person doesn't even have to be physically present before us. How can we judge whether, you know, the degree of someone else's enlightenment? There are symptoms given in the scriptures, particularly in the Bhagavad Gita. There's descriptions given at the end of the second chapter, descriptions given at the end of the twelfth chapter, and in the fourteenth chapter, sixteenth chapter. There's descriptions of an enlightened soul. But again, that's not so easy to gauge because you're not just looking at somebody's external symptoms, you're trying to understand what their level of consciousness is. So what's advised is that one live closely with a spiritual teacher for at least a year before making a commitment and not just making a commitment based on something superficial and not just making a commitment based on, oh, you know, this person has a thousand other students, so they must be okay. But at least having, at least having the faith that this is a person who can guide me. If they're not 100% perfect, at least they're far enough ahead of me and they're going quickly enough... <laughs> That I don't need to worry about it. And some spiritual teachers actually descend from the higher abodes and they come here specifically to teach. And others are people like anybody else who become perfect through following a process. And in one sense there's no difference between them, but in another sense there is, because a person who's become perfect through following a process is going to have a body that was the result of their previous karma. So that's a little bit of a difference. And it's described that there may still be some impurities, even in advanced soul, but they don't impede that person. Like there may still be some smell in a pot of perfume, even if all the perfume's taken out. But I would really suggest, if one's interested in finding a spiritual teacher where one actually becomes a disciple, to read the descriptions of what is a qualified spiritual teacher. It's just like if you want to buy a diamond, you know, you study what is a diamond. If you want to buy gold, you study what's gold. And there's different levels and kinds of spiritual masters also. There's spiritual masters who initiate one into the process. 
There's spiritual masters who instruct one in the process. There's spiritual masters who point out the process to us. I mean, I have, there's, I have many, many persons who I see as my spiritual teachers on one level or another. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's not, either you're totally my spiritual master as a pure enlightened soul or you're rubbish. You know, it's, it's not like that. So I, there's many, and there's some persons who I see as my teachers because they're ahead of me in certain areas. And it's in those areas that I'm going to go to them and say, please help me with this. Does that make sense? But I, I really would suggest, you know, further study as to what are the symptoms. But that was a very nice question. Ooh. When I chant, I use creative visualization to see Krishna in a setting outside the mundane world to stay focused. That is exactly the instruction of one of our teachers, Jiva Goswami. And he specifically advises that when chanting, that one visualize Krishna in his realm. Now, in order to do that, you have to know something about Krishna's realm. So you have to have studied something from the scripture. You can't just make it up out of your brain. Do you visualize when chanting? Yes, I do. Am I in the right track? Yes. And Srila Prabhupada, uh, my spiritual master, talked about all different sorts of visualizations one can do with chanting. There's one time uh, in, in Switzerland where he said, chanting Hare Krishna means that you imagine that you have a diamond thrown in your heart and that you put Krishna on it and you're bathing him with water from the Ganges and the Jamuna and you're dressing him and you're ornamenting him. And, uh, and, and he uses the word imagine. He says you should imagine. And then he says, but it is not false, it is real. He says it is accepted by Krishna as real. Uh, many other places Prabhupada will say, as soon as you chant, you should feel Krishna's presence, and then immediately you remember how he spoke the Bhagavad Gita or how he's playing with his friends. Now, one thing I've, I've found in my, own, in my own practice is that it really makes a difference whether I'm doing that mechanically or not. So if I take chanting as a mechanical process and I say, okay, I'm going to chant Hare Krishna, and while I chant Hare Krishna, I'm going to you know, have this visualization that Krishna is kind of like, uh, you know, I'm a person and you're dealing with me like I'm a machine. That's really doing bhakti yoga as if it was a stanga yoga. A stanga yoga is a mechanical process for controlling the life airs and the organs of the body which puts the mind into a state of samadhi ultimately. That's what a stanga yoga is. It's a mechanical process that... Our bodies are designed not only to interact with sense objects, but our bodies are also designed, if you know how to work the mechanisms, to go into a state of trance. But bhakti isn't like that. Bhakti is supposed to, you go into a state of trance because you really like Krishna. It's kind of how we naturally go into a trance-like state if we're doing something we really enjoy. Yes? They call it flow, which is a kind of samadhi, actually. You lose sense of space and time and everything around you, and you forget to eat and you forget to sleep because you're so absorbed in what you're doing. So our chanting should be that we become so absorbed in Krishna because we really like Krishna. That's actually the essence of bhakti. So this visualization of Krishna should come naturally when I hear a lot about Krishna, naturally when I say his name. Like if I said, oh, my mother, then immediately I remember, what does my mother look like? What does she act like? What do I do with her? Does this make sense to everybody? So it shouldn't be a mechanical thing. Okay, now it's the answer. 
It shouldn't be like that. It should be something that naturally flows. But it's something that Srila Prabhupada really emphasized. And then he would say, if you can't do that, then just hear the sound of the mantra. So that was always his second best. You know, if you can't do that, just hear the sound of the mantra. But also we're individuals. I mean, sometimes, like Prabhupada told George Harrison, that he could get a picture of Krishna and focus on the picture while he was chanting. Uh, sometimes Prabhupada would just say, you know, you've seen the paintings of Krishna, just visualize that. He said, can't you remember the paintings or the deity of Krishna uh, while you're chanting? Um, but I really like where Prabhupada said to feel the presence of Krishna while you're chanting. Okay. What is the best way to parent and guide teenage children from afar through Krishna consciousness to homes that have different values without making a parent wrong? Ooh. This is probably a long consult for the individual situation. And, and, and this, is, this is a very tricky kind of situation. I'm going to be giving a seminar at our center in Auckland. What am I going to be giving that? That would answer this question. And rather than trying to answer it here, if you're interested... Okay, that's going to be on Saturday the 14th at 10 o'clock in the morning. So whoever wrote this question, if you want to come to the Hare Krishna School on Saturday the 14th at 10 o'clock in the morning, I'll be talking about what are the main ways that you can help your children be Krishna conscious regardless of your circumstance. If you don't want to come, it's online. Um, It's on ISKCON Desire Tree under, if you can remember all this, audio, ISKCON Mataji's, Urmila Devi Dasi or Urmila Mataji and it's there as like four keys to giving your children Krishna consciousness or four keys to Krishna conscious culture or something like that. There's two or three versions of it up there and I'll also be teaching it in Auckland on the 14th at 10 o'clock. So that would be my, my main answer to this because other, other than that you'd want to get into some, you know, really talking to a person and finding out what their, what their particular situation is. If we develop unconditional love for ourselves and for others, doesn't love for God just come naturally or the other way around? The other way around. Mm. That we go from hold to part. Because having unconditional love for self and for others implies that I know who I am. And it implies that I know who others are. I find it impossible to have unconditional love for my false self. That doesn't work for me very well. If I'm going to identify myself as this body, I'll tell you frankly, I do not have unconditional love for this body. There's certain things about this body I really, really just don't like. And there's no amount of of mental adjustment that's going to get me to like them. You know, I can try to use them and whatever, but I don't don't like them. And there's certain things I don't like about my mind. And again, there's no amount of, of adjusting how I look at things that I can unconditionally like my mind. And there's no amount of adjustment where I can unconditionally like someone else's body and someone else's mind. The people who I love very dearly and who I would sacrifice my life for frankly have things about the way they think and the way they act and the way they look that I don't like. And I just frankly don't like it. 
and I just choose to love them in spite of that, but that's not exactly unconditional. And there are certain things that if those people did, then I would distance myself from them. And I'd say, sorry, if you're going to do that, you know, I'm, I'm still going to have affection for you, but I'm not going to hang out with you. So that's, if I see my real self, though, and their real self, then there's no flaws in my real self, and there's no flaws in their real self. So I don't have to make any kind of adjustment like that. I don't have to say, well, you're always late to appointments, and you know, you're not considerate of my time, but I love you anyway. You follow? I had a, a time when I was sharing a car with some family members who would literally never tell me when they were going to use the car. They would just simply never tell me. And, you know, I'd go out to use the car, and it wasn't there. And so I, what I had to do was I had to put it, you know, not only tell them I have an appointment at 2 o'clock, but I had to leave a note on the steering wheel. You know, I have an appointment today, a doctor's appointment at 2 o'clock, and I need the car from 1 to 3. So I still love them, but the, I didn't love that behavior. I found that behavior very, you know, it was hurtful. And I was never, I was never able to successfully communicate to those people that I found their behavior hurtful. You know, somehow it just never never worked. But the real self is not like that. But I'm not going to see the real self. The, seeing the real self and seeing the whole are together. It's like I don't... The, the sun and a particle of the sun, you know, if, if I'm seeing the sunshine coming in this room, in one sense that's because I'm seeing the sun. I'm not seeing the sun directly, perhaps. But it's, you can't really tease it separately like that. So it's very connected. As soon as I start to see my real self, which I can love, then immediately I'm going to understand, oh, my real self is part of the whole spiritual reality. I don't exist as a spiritual being separate from the rest of spiritual reality. So it, it, it's concurrent. And if I focus on seeing Krishna, I'm going to see myself because I'm part of Krishna. As soon as I focus on seeing Krishna, my real self will manifest to me. And what's really interesting, as one's real self manifests, you find you really like your real self. In the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says you should relish and rejoice in the self. And that's not just some sort of feel-goodism, but who we actually are is wonderful. And not only wonderful, but who we actually are is someone that we particularly really like. Who I am eternally is exactly, perfectly, totally what I want to be. You know, in, in an illusion state that never quite happens. Even if I'm really happy, I mean, there's some parts of myself in this illusion state that I think are super cool. That's a fact. But I've never come to a point where I say everything about myself in this illusion state is super cool. And I'm totally happy with all of it. It all has downsides. You follow? All the things about myself in an illusion state, even the things that I really like and they're super cool, I'm like, whoa, I'm so glad I'm like that. In the wrong situation, those things become a problem for me. Those very things that I really like. Like, I really like the fact that I'm straightforward. But sometimes it gets me into a lot of trouble, you know, in the wrong place with the wrong person. It's like, oh, <laughs> so it's it's just it's just like that. 
And I like the fact that I'm really analytical and logical, but sometimes if I'm with people who need to be dealt with in a different way, it becomes a block between me and them. And I have, I have to struggle. You know, the thing that allows me to read complicated books and reorganize them and make them into cool presentations and all that kind of stuff that I love that I can do, if I have to relate to somebody just emotion to emotion, becomes really hard for me. So the very thing that's, that's, that I like about myself in situation A is a problem for myself in situation B. But on the spiritual level, everything I like about myself is only cool. There's no downside to it. There's, there's no negativity. There's no situational thing. There's no conditional thing. It's like, oh, I'm a really cool self. Wow. And that you start to see that about others also. You start to see, wow, everybody is perfect in their own individual way. In how they're relating with Krishna and how they're, they're manifesting spiritual love. It's just... Okay, if, if I don't think I'll become an initiated full Hare Krishna, should I still get involved as much as I can? Will there still be benefit from going part of the way? Yes, and that's one of the very nice things about Krishna consciousness as opposed to a lot of the religions of the world. So there's a lot of the religions of the world It's like you believe this totally and you do this totally or you are damned totally. Now, that is such an unworkable proposition. So what they'll usually do is water things down and say, well, if you just say you believe, then that's enough. Which is completely ridiculous. I mean, it's just completely ridiculous to have this idea of ultimate, you know, God is there. You believe I exist? Okay, heaven eternally. You don't believe I exist? I'm going to torture you eternally. It's like, why do you worship that kind of a God? Doesn't sound like a nice person to me. I don't even want to meet them. I speak of hanging out with them all the time. But no, if you, if you have, and those are unfortunately perversions of something that was once genuine. But the way the universe is, is constructed, the way the whole world of illusion is constructed, is anything you do to wake up to reality is encouraged and, I don't want to say rewarded, because that's, that doesn't really, it gives kind of a false idea. You could say rewarded, but it's not like, oh, here, have a sweet little doggy for standing up. It's not like that. It, it's like... The closer you get to truth, the happier you are. The more you use things as they're meant to be used, and the more you wake up to things as they are, the happier and more peaceful you are. And the better things work for you. And the further you go into illusion and and forgetfulness, the worse things are for you. And it's it's a continuum. It's not an on-off switch. Now, at a certain point when you come into light and you come into knowledge and you come into realization, it's still dynamic, but you, like, cross a boundary and you're into a state where there's no return. You could turn if you want to. It's not that you don't have free will. But one comes to a state of just regaining our original position. But the closer you get to that, the happier you'll be. And anything, anything one takes up in bhakti has a very beneficial effect even materially. Although it may have some effects that like you, you, certain people you might say, I don't know if I want to hang out with you and do that anymore. So you should be warned that that is a good possibility if you go deep into bhakti that certain things become like, and I think I want to get rid of that in my life. I don't think I want to eat that kind of food anymore. I don't think I want to spend my time doing that kind of thing. 
But yeah, that's what's nice about bhakti. And, you know, even... And one has to be careful with this one. But as long as one is progressing upward, one does not get reactions either at all or only slightly for bad karma. And the reason I say I have to be careful with that one is if one intentionally takes up bhakti with that in mind, it kind of messes everything up. If you're like, all right, well, the reason I'm doing some spiritual practice is so if I do a little bit of spiritual practice, that I can do all other kinds of nasty things and not suffer for them. That, that, that doesn't work. But if we're going forward, because Krishna is very kind, he, he's not a vindictive, punishing person. It's just, it's just not who he is. I mean, he has, to, he has to, in order for there to be free will, he has to let beings receive the reactions to their behavior. But it's not that he likes seeing anybody suffer at all. So anything a person does toward actual reality means that whatever negative things they've done are either put aside totally or or partially. And it's actually quite beautiful. If you just take one step, then even if you've done terrible things in your life, that that karma is just put aside. Either Either it's destroyed or it's put to the side. Okay, are you going to go forward? 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 And as long as you keep going forward, then there's... Th- th- those things are not going to affect one. And it does definitely increase the quality of one's life. Okay. If a woman decides not to have children, is that acceptable? Yeah, sure, why not? It depends why one decides anything. It's not so much the decision, it's what motivates the decision. It really isn't so much exactly what am I deciding, but why am I deciding it? Like I met a woman who didn't want to have children. She was married, her husband wanted to have children, and she didn't want to have children because she said, I don't like the idea of another being being like a parasite in my body. I'm like, you know, that is not a very good reason. You know, I don't want to be celibate, I want to have sex, but I don't want to have my body be the home to somebody else. Like, you know, that's not cool. So if that's one's reason, you know, that's not very cool. But if one wants to fully devote oneself to spiritual life and and live a life of sexual abstinence, then there's no harm. That can be a very wonderful thing. But it depends. You know, whatever we're doing. Are we doing it because we're selfish? Are we doing it for some higher purpose? Whatever we're doing. It doesn't matter. It's, it's not so much the thing. You know, should I work at a job? Should I not work at a job? Should I have my own business? Should I, work, should I live in the country? Should I live in the city? Should I get married? Should I not get married? What, what's our motive? Why am I doing it? What's driving me? You know, if someone says, well, or, or if someone says, well, I don't want to have any children because I want to be able to spend all my money on the latest fashion. I don't want to have to maintain anybody else. It's like, That's not really a very good reason not to have children. Are, after all, these, these bodies are really not, they're, they're just lent to me. It's not mine. It can be taken away at any moment. I mean, all this propaganda about it's my body and I can do whatever I want with it. Realistically, that's false. Anybody can understand. I know it's not my body because it can be taken away from me at any moment without even notice. 
you know. So obviously it's not mine. Quite obviously it's not mine. I, I didn't create it. I don't even really know how it works. Even medical doctors don't really know how it works. You know, I, I don't know how I eat a piece of bread and it turns into a fingernail. I haven't a clue. You know, it's, it's really not mine. And to say I can do with it whatever I want is, is absurd. And even, even in, in, in laws of a country, you can do with your body whatever you want. You can do whatever you want within the law. You can't do whatever you want. So, you know, our bodies are home to so many other living beings. So many bacteria and creatures that also live in my body. And to decide that you're going to use your body to take care of another living being is, is, a, great, is a great and wonderful thing. So if one decides I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to use my, my body in sacrifice for some other living being, then it should be because there's some other kind of sacrifice and giving that we're doing. I mean, that's, that's a huge thing. <coughs> it's a huge thing. People who haven't had kids or, or men, I think, you know, just to be pregnant for nine months and to go through labor and birth and breastfeeding. And that's a very big thing that one's giving one's own body to shelter and feed another, another being. And you don't even know what kind of being it's going to be. You don't know, is it going to be healthy? Is it going to be handicapped? Am I going to like them? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot more risky than getting married. And you can divorce your spouse. You can't divorce your kid. I mean, some people don't talk to their kids for 20 years, but still. So if one's not, that's the natural biological sacrifice. And if one is not going to do that, then one should do something equal or greater sacrifice with their body. And that's something to be selfish. I hope that's an acceptable answer. I hope I didn't get in the, in the doghouse for that one. Who sets or chooses the topics of lessons... For us that we are sent on earth to learn. It's actually a combination of us and Krishna. What I need to learn is what I personally need to learn because of my personal choices. And Krishna decides what would be the best way for me to learn. So it's a combination. It's like um, in a school... If you, know, if you go to a teacher and you say, I'd like to learn how to sail a boat or I'd like to learn how to you know, cook pineapple upside down cake or whatever, you know, you go to a teacher, you want to learn something. But then if the teacher is expert, that teacher will design a lesson for you. So it's, it's a combination of what we need to learn. And each of us, in one sense, needs to all learn essentially the same things. We all need to learn that love is better than selfishness and we all, better, we all need to learn that truth is better than falsity. Those are kind of the general things that all of us have to learn. But exactly how we have to learn that is going to be very different for each one of us. Because the elements of falsity that I'm attached to are going to be different than the elements of falsity that you're attached to. You know, so certain things I'm like, yeah, I can see that. And you can't. And certain things that you can say, oh, I can see that. I can't. So exactly, you know, so Krishna is having a custom-designed lesson for each of us. But it's it's... It's not just, okay, you sit down and you're... It's not just like that. It's also with us. And part of it is what we ask for. You know, like Jesus says, ask and you will receive and seek and you will find. That's the essence of everything. You know, my spiritual teacher said the essence is sincerity. That's it. Want. 
what we want to know and what we want to learn, we will learn. What we don't want to know and what we don't want to learn is not going to be forced on us. Now, sometimes we have contradictory things. Sometimes we're like, I really want to learn this, but I don't know. But I really, but I don't know. But I really, but I don't know. And then Krishna will say, well, let's give it a try. If there are so many rasas, why do we still want to enjoy the material world? It's very similar to the other question. Um, the rasas have their reflection in this world. So we have, I don't know if all of you understand what this question means. But we're, we're basically trying to enjoy a reflection of the reality. Why do we want to enjoy this, this world? There's no answer to that other than utter stupidity. I'm really sorry that that's the only answer to that question. And as I say, I don't, I don't think this is something that can be explained. I think it's something that can be experienced. You could compare it to, you know, haven't we ever had some long-standing habit or behavior or mindset and all of a sudden we realize that it was utter stupidity? Yes? Maybe some of you who are really young haven't had that, but you will. I, I was reading a fascinating article yesterday about this one guy whose parents are heavy-duty white supremacists. And he was towing the party line, and he was, you know, writing about, we, we went, he was American, we got to get rid of, you know, all the non-whites from America, and all this, you know, he was really on that. And uh, then he went to, to university, and he was trying to keep a low pro- profile, because he knew that everybody would criticism, criticize him, but he was going on the weekends and doing a white supremacist radio show. So eventually he got outed, you know, eventually people found out, hey, this guy is preaching white supremacy. And he got, you know, thousands of hate messages, which is a little ironic if you think about it. Here's a hater, let's send him hate messages. And then one, <laughs> one guy thought, let's do the opposite. He thought, let's just try to be friends with him. And it was interesting, um, you know, it was not only white supremacy, right, white Christian supremacy. So the guy who wanted to be friends with him was Jewish, and he had a Jewish ceremony at his uh, like dorm room every week and he invited all different people to, to, to participate, not all of whom were Jewish so he invited this guy and they didn't talk about any of this stuff at all and the guy came because he thought well it's the only person who's been friendly to me since people found out who I am so at least I'll go you know? and over many, many, many months of being friendly with this guy you know, and, and here, you know, there's some guy there from South America, and there's some guy who's Jewish, and there's some, you know. And he started to get to know people as people. And nobody was judging him. And eventually, somebody said to him, hey, you know, let's talk about this. Anyway, over the, a few years, he ended up going the other, completely the other way, which upset his parents very much. <laughs> but all of a sudden, he could see, hey, wait a minute, you know, I was a total idiot. I, I was a complete fool. It was just stupid. What I was doing was, wasn't, it wasn't what I really wanted to be doing at all. So we, we all have these things, hopefully not with such major faults in our life, but we all have these kind of things where we're treating somebody some way, we're acting some way, and all of a sudden we go, wow, what am I doing? This is not what I want to be doing. This is not the kind of person I want to be. And if we really fully see that, then we have a shift and we don't go back. You know, we just, I, I'm never doing this again. Or I'm never eating this stuff again, or, you know, right? 
So, but in the, until we want to see that, we don't see it. And that's really the answer to that. Okay, we'll get to that one. How do devotees sustain support themselves financially whilst advancing in Krishna consciousness? In work or service that they feel genuinely, genuinely good about? I, I'd say that the answer to that is as varied as anything that devotees sustain themselves financially in all the ways anybody sustains themselves financially, except that devotees don't do things that involve them in gross sinful activities. So they're not going to be selling liquor, they're not going to be selling meat and things like that. Um, as far as while advancing in Krishna consciousness, it's a question of, of, yes, finding a work that you feel genuinely good about, finding something that's in line with your nature, you know, that, that really resonates with your nature. And then finding Krishna in your work because Krishna is everywhere. You know, the concept that to be a spiritual person, you have to be a renunciate, you have to, you know, be somebody living in the Himalayas in a cave who doesn't work, is not accurate. If it were accurate, we, wouldn't be, we couldn't try to spiritualize the world. We're not going to turn the world into a bunch of cave-living yogis, you know. We're still going to have to have shops and buses and hospitals and if the, if the whole world were spiritualized. I would imagine some of the things going on in the world today wouldn't be existing at all. There, there would definitely, if the whole world came to a higher level of consciousness, we would see some major changes in the world. But it, it's not that people would stop living. I mean, one major change would be that the earth would, would produce differently. In, in times of the earth when everyone was at a higher level of consciousness, there was not even a need for agriculture. And uh, the, I have a, a place in Hawaii, and it's still like that in a lot of the Hawaiian islands. I have a friend who lived <coughs> intentionally homeless, excuse me, for a year before taking up Krishna consciousness. And she said she gained weight. <gasps> Just climbing up the coconut trees and picking the avocados and she bathed in the ocean and the rivers, and you can live out. You can literally live outside because it's never too hot or too cold. And there's just, I mean, in our backyard we have wild avocado trees. There's a there's a stand down the road that sells juice, and I mean, it was so funny when my kids took me there, and you go in and you 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 know you or what would you like? Well, you know, banana and guava and pineapple. Oh, just a minute, and they go out in the back and they pick it. You know, they come in and they make the juice. Like, whoa. <laughs> and so the world would also change, uh, but that would require a, a global change in consciousness. But it, it is an art to be able to work in the world and work with people in the world who are not in spiritual consciousness until you, and still maintain your own consciousness. That's definitely an art. In fact, um, I have a seminar on that, but I just today was discussing with someone how I'm going to expand that into like eight or ten hours and teach it, unfortunately, here for America. I'll be teaching it in America in May. You know, a, a, an interactive seminar where we'll really look at how do we work in the world and how do we function in the world and at the same time develop ourselves spiritually. And it, it, A lot of it depends on what kind of job you have. I mean, I worked for a year in a job where I had to hide that I was a Hare Krishna devotee. And boy, that was hard. I would never do that again. I would never do it again. It, it was interesting. Um, I remember hearing one uh, one guy who's gay talking about how his life was had to do with identity management. 
he said, you know, when I'm around people, i got to pretend that I'm straight when I'm not. And I thought, wow, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to be with people and pretend that I'm materialistic, but not be materialistic. And I'm trying to have spiritual awareness, but not let it show. And I found it to be exhausting. Not being able to be honest about who I was. That was just, it was very draining. That I did be constantly maintaining this, this identity management. And I decided at the end of that year, I said there was no way I would ever work in a situation like that again. You know, I'd only work in a situation where I could be reasonably open. Not that I have to go around telling everybody else what, what they should be doing, but at least that I could be open about who I am with, without being afraid of being fired. So that's for me. I mean, maybe some people can be in, a, in another environment and function, but I couldn't. I, I just found it impossible. And I'd say something where you can be at least somewhat open about your spirituality, at least, again, that was for me and where there was a schedule that was conducive with your spiritual practices. You know, people who work jobs where they have to be there at 3 in the morning. But, I mean, I know people who like jobs where they're there at night or early in the morning, and they do their chanting at work when nobody else is around. So I know people who are, like, you know, security guards, and they love it because they can do their chanting there, or they can, they can do their reading while they're, they're at the guard station or things like that, so. But I think a lot of that is also ask and you will find. I know people who've been in really difficult situations and I said to them, look, have some faith that, that there is a good situation for you out there. Don't stay stuck in a situation that's really incompatible with your values and your beliefs and your, your goals and your, and your ideals in life. Just to live. You know, that have some faith that, you're gonna, that you'll be provided for. I don't have time to get into this, but I've done this kind of leap many times. You know, that I'm going to follow my ideals and trust that I'm going to be taken care of. And I've seen that I always am. I may not always be taken care of exactly like I had in my head. You know, it may not show up exactly, but I've always been taken care of. All right. I'm young and feel like I would really restrict myself by taking up this process. What is the strictness with which you have to follow the regulations in Krishna consciousness? Why don't you go towards the positive first? Let the negative take care of itself as you go on in the positive. Don't worry so much about the negative. This is not a process of austerity for the sake of austerity or restrictions for the sake of restrictions. It's restrictions that come naturally because you lose your interest in them because you have something better. Go for something better. You know, if, if, you, if you can take up a restriction due to intellectual conviction and keep it because it's not a big deal for you because you never were really into it anyway, then that's fine. You know, if you say, well, you know, I only ate this garbage food a few times a month anyway. It's not that big of a deal to give it up. Okay, fine. But if it's something that you're really attached to, like, oh my God, I don't know how I can live without this, I think I'm just going to die. You know what was the hardest thing for me to give up? Was my music. Oh my God. I mean, when, when I joined the Hare Krishna movement, joining the movement meant it, it, was, it was all or nothing. It was like, you wanted to join the movement, you had to move into the ashram and give up everything. So I dropped out of school, you know, gave my car back to my dad, I still can't believe I did that. And I just like came to the temple with one little box of stuff 
And I gave away all my records. Do any of you know what records are? Anyway, so I gave away all my records. Oh my God, I love music. And when I when I moved into the temple and I moved into the ashram, then there was there was hardly any Krishna conscious music at all. There was, there was hardly any. There were two or three records of Shiva Prabhupada chanting. There was the one record that George Harrison made, and. That was like it. And later we had little cassette tapes, if you know what those are. So we had little cassette tapes, two or three, you know, there was like there hardly any variety of anything to listen to and, and hardly anything to listen to that was musically very pleasing. And it was, it was really hard. And it was many, 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 many years before devotees started making music in all different styles and all different genres with all different instruments. And thank you. But that was my hardest thing. That was really... I think my other hardest thing was I grew up in New York City and once, twice, thrice a week we were going, you know, to the theater and the opera and the ballet. You know, and then I joined the Hare Krishna movement. It was... Maybe there was a skit on Sunday. Maybe. maybe. And, you know, maybe we saw one film a year. Maybe. Maybe. One devotional film a year. Maybe. Perhaps. So that was really hard for me. I, I didn't find it hard, you know, no meat eating, no illicit sex, no intoxication, no gambling, waking up early in the morning. That for me was like, okay, that was not a big deal at all. That's never been a big deal for me. But that other was hard. That was like, <laughs> so at least now there's a, there's a lot more music and entertainment that's Krishna conscious. But I would say, you know, do things do things because you're you're growing in, in happiness and Krishna consciousness. Don't restrict for the sake of restrictions. If you restrict for the sake of restrictions, it doesn't last anyway. It just it just does it doesn't work in the long run. It, it, it catches up with you sooner or later. All right. I get really depressed, anxious about the state of the world. For example, Donald Trump. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I woke up one morning. Where was I? I was in Durban, South Africa. So I woke up in the morning, and the toilet had leaked again. We cleaned it up like six, seven times. And there was a flood all over the flower I was staying. And I found out that Donald Trump had been elected president. (laughs) And I had found I was carrying 18,000 Indian rupees. And I found out that India had demonetized the 1,000 rupee note and that my rupees that I carried with me were probably worthless. And that was my next step, was India. So it was all the same morning. And I have a little altar that I travel with, and I just sat in front of my altar, and I was doing my, my, my prayers and my meditation and my worship of Krishna, and I felt utter peace in fact I think I felt the most peace in my worship I've ever felt because I just went there like no (laughs) and I just felt this this shelter felt this shelter that whatever was happening in the world that their spiritual reality was there and was my shelter and it was, it was just absolutely beautiful. 
know, and, and there's there's a lot of fearful things in the world, and, and you think about world history, and uh, all the things that people have gone through. I think here in New Zealand, you haven't gone through very many of them. But you know, I mean, that that guy scares me, frankly. I mean, he really scares me. I, I see I see a lot of parallels between him and Hitler, and I just scares the bejeebers out of me. Well, what can you do? You know, there, there's, there's some things we can do and some things we can get involved up, but ultimately we have to find our peace within. I can't control the world. I can't control what dictators or crazy people take over in the world. And, you know, but I, I can control my inner space. With what attitude should I watch the news or should I watch it at all? Um, keep in mind that whatever news you watch or read is highly biased in one direction or another. We never get totally accurate news. And I learned this when we lived in Detroit and our, our Hare Krishna temple opened a restaurant and NBC News, there was a local station and the, and the national station, they both reported on it and they reported on it completely opposite. Because the temple was right on the boundary between the super wealthy area and the super poor area. Like maybe 10 blocks on either side. And so, and there was the same television network and one reported it, they took pictures of the rundown area and then they showed the temple and they said, the Hare Krishna movement is improving this terrible rundown neighborhood by opening a restaurant and a cultural center. And then the other broadcast took pictures of the very wealthy area and said, the Hare Krishna movement is commercializing and ruining this wonderful area. And it was the same network. One was a local, one was a national. And I thought, you know, you can't believe these guys. They, they're having their own bias and they're having their own perspective. So, I don't know how much anybody should watch the news at all. I'd say, you know, get your news from a variety of sources. Get your news from some liberal sources, some conservative sources, and, and, and do a little shopping around. Um, should I watch it at all? Probably not, but you should find out what's going on in the world. You know, one, one shouldn't... We need to interact with the world. We should have some knowledge of what's going on in the world. But... I would say probably better news sources than like television news. That's probably one of the worst news sources. Excuse me, I'm gonna, I just need to excuse myself. Oh. I've got a teenager waiting, unfortunately. Okay. But, uh, thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'm not going to get through all these. Could you explain the deeper meaning behind the phrase surrender to Krishna? Um... Trust that I'm loved, that I'm taken care of, that that Krishna has my back, that he has my best interest in mind, and live in harmony with him rather than living in fear and separation. Can you explain the individuality of each devotee's practice or lifestyle? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um... But it's hard to answer quickly. So we have a certain practice that's for everyone. But exactly how you do that is going to have some variety. And then beyond that basic practice, what you take up is going to have a lot of variety. So we suggest everybody reads the scriptures. But exactly which scriptures you want to read and in which order. We have a recommended order, but you have to read it in that order. No, we don't. And exactly how you study 
exactly how you approach chanting on a deeper level isn't one formula for each person exactly what service you offer to Krishna and eventually our real spiritual individuality awakens on an ultimate level which is totally cool If you have personal issues in this life, should you neglect them or face them or what to do? Because sometimes you feel you cannot concentrate on your spirituality, so how to focus on spirituality in that case? Um, This is such an individual question. Some personal issues in life are going to be taken care of just by concentrating on your spirituality and you don't need to do anything else. Some personal issues are going to have to be dealt with separately. And this is something that you really would work with an individual to, to see what's not the case. I mean, some some personal issues in my life just have gone away just by chanting Hare Krishna and taking up the process of Krishna consciousness. Other things I had to make a, a specific, discreet effort to take care of them. It's like if you practice Krishna consciousness, you're going to lead a healthy lifestyle, and doing that may automatically take care of any health issues that you have, but maybe not. Maybe there's some health issue you have that just by leading a sattvic lifestyle it isn't going to be addressed. Maybe you also have to see a doctor and get some kind of medication or some kind of therapy. Ooh. No one's ever asked me this question before. So what about death? Does it relate to our karma? Do we decide when we leave our body or is it all just random? Please don't say it's random. Ah! Well, even if you want to talk about our own karma, you know, our own karma is in one sense our choice, although it's not our choice, you know, it's like you choose to park illegally, you're choosing that you may get towed. You know, it's not you're saying, I want to get towed today, (laughs) you know, but it's, it's sort of like that, right? Does that make sense? Right. So... How long we stay in this body has to do with the fulfillment of the desires that brought us into this body. When all the desires that gave us this particular body are fulfilled, we leave the body because we have no more business to be in it. It's like you go to a store, you want to buy particular things, and after you buy those things, you leave the store. The difficulty is that we don't remember exactly what we came in this body to do, and so it's hard for us to know when we're done. So it may appear to us as random, but it's not actually random. It's really according to what we came, what we, what we're in this body to do. We came, came to this body to do something in particular. It may not be something particularly intelligent, by the way. It's not necessarily that we have this particular body because we had some very intelligent, thoughtful, and beneficial things to do, but we wanted to have certain experiences. And we, the karma means what experience we wanted and what what we paid for, kind of. So depending on how much my activities were in accord with what's true, to that extent I get to fulfill my desires in a nice way. And however much my activities are not in accord with what's true, I get to fulfill my desires in not such a nice way. Can we influence in this life when we die? Well, of course. We all know that. Up to a point. You know, whether you smoke or not, whether you eat healthy or not, whether you exercise or not. But that's up to a point. You know, you can do all those things and get hit by a car. 
So there's, there's a point at which we can influence, but there's a point at which, at which we can't. Do we feel sad when a person dies? Well, yeah, because then you're not being able to interact with them if it was somebody that you really like to be with. It's sad that you're not able to be with them. Um, if, you, if you have the conviction based on rational knowledge that that person has traveled to some situation that's better for them, then you're not sad for them, but you're sad for yourself that you're not in their company anymore. And if that person was a big chunk of your life, then it's, it's almost like you're mourning for losing that chunk of your life. Does that make sense? It's like, it's like a part of your identity is gone. On the spiritual level, uh, when a person is spiritually realized, they get so much pleasure from interacting with other enlightened beings on the spiritual platform, that if one of them leaves this plane, then that's a, a transcendent grief. It's not a material grief. It's a, it's a sweet grief. Okay. Well, this is the one I wasn't going to answer. So I'm not going to answer it. Okay, it's about me. Um, what specific signs can we identify whilst chanting the chode is working as opposed to chanting mindlessly and inattentively? Oh, this is very nice. So, two main categories. One is that you automatically lose your interest in things that are selfish and harmful. You see them for what they are. You see them accurately. You, you experience them accurately and you go, oh, I don't want to do that. You, you get detached from a materialistic life, just naturally, because you see it accurately. Your vision starts to clear. And you get more and more attached to Krishna. You, you feel more, much more and more love and affection and, and peacefulness and, and joy. But also, as I say, you will see stuff. One of the effects of, of a proper meditative or contemplative practice is that you will see the reality of yourself you'll see both your own spiritual beauty and greatness and you'll see the, how foolish the things you are that you're doing that are in opposition to that. And you'll see both at the same time. You'll see, wow, I am a wonderful, far-out, amazing being who's doing some pretty stupid things. So you'll see both, you'll see both of that if you're chanting nice. But your, um, your, your ability to... It's like, it's like you just see clearly in general. Your vision clears and your spiritual nature starts to awaken and being able to distinguish between illusion and reality, being able to choose properly and having genuine love awaken in your heart, which is very cool. But it does involve seeing those other things too. How can spirituality help me in the material world I feel opposite? Well, it helps you to see what's going on here. You can much better function in a place where you understand what's going on. It helps you to see the modes of material nature. It helps you to see your own psychology. It helps you to see other psychology, which you have to be careful about that. You have to be really careful that you don't um, try to fix everybody because you, you will see other people very clearly, much more clearly than they can see themselves, and that's a, a downside. That, that she, he or she said, you know, I feel the opposite. But you'll be able to see people clearly. It helps you have compassion for yourself and for others. To know what is harmful, what is beneficial. Uh, I don't think that spirituality is going to help you be 
a successful materialist because that's kind of the whole point. So if, if you think spirituality is going to help me to become, you know, rich and famous so I can try to be like Donald Trump, you know, spirituality will not help you be like Donald Trump. And if that's where you want to, you know, where you want to go with it, it won't work. Because if he was spiritual, he'd look at his life and go, what am I doing? You know? Now, that doesn't mean that he'd give up all of his money. It doesn't, you know. But it would mean that he would give up his, his mentality. You follow? So, no, you, you can't really be... You can't really be a successful materialistic person in that sense. You can't be a grossly selfish pig and take up a spiritual path. They're incompatible. You know, what, what you can do, you can take a few steps on a spiritual path and still be a grossly materialistic pig. That you can do. We see that all over the world in different religions. And people will even use their religion to justify being a grossly selfish pig. So if you don't get to the cleaning stage, if you stay on the lower stages of spirituality, you can use religion or spirituality to justify all kinds of absolutely absurd things and you can be worse than the grossly selfish pigs who aren't doing anything spiritual. So you can do that. So if you want to be a spiritualist and be a grossly disgusting materialistic pig at the same time, then just stay at the lower levels of spirituality where, where you just have a religion where spirituality is just a religion and it's just my religion is better than your religion and I'm the only one who knows the truth and nobody else knows the truth and if you don't take up my truth you're going to hell and I'm going to shoot you. Which is like, you know, that's the really lower, lower, lower. It's something because at least they have some idea there's something beyond the world so it's something. It is something. You, you can do that. But no, if you, if you go to the deeper levels of spirituality you won't be able to act like a grossly selfish materialistic person. You won't. And if you want to, please stop spiritual life. Don't go on with it, please. Just because it won't work. It just won't work. I mean, our, our, our great Acharya, our great teacher, Rupa Goswami said, if you want to think that you're going to enjoy this world as a lord and master of the creation, don't look at Krishna. Because it'll just mess everything up. You, know, you just won't be able to do it. You'll see things clearly. But as far as being able to be happy and peaceful in the world, definitely. Spirituality, actually, it, it, you'll know how to live happily in this world, no matter how crazy the world is. You'll be able to maintain your peace and equanimity. You know, you'll be able to lead a life where you have happiness in your own relationships, even if other people aren't nice to you, that you still have happiness in your relationships, definitely. So in that way, spirituality teaches you to live happily in the world. And if we had enough people practicing spirituality, the world itself would change. The nature of the world. Nature itself would respond to that change. How do you manage the obvious bias towards men in the Srimad Bhagavatam? Well, a lot of the Bhagavatam was spoken by men to men. And the parts that are spoken by women to women or men to women are not biased. So it just seems obvious to me that if men are speaking to men, it's biased towards men. I hope that's a sufficient enough answer. Okay. How do I know when I'm ready to find a spiritual master? 
that you that comes in the third stage when you decide that you really want to take your spiritual life beyond a hobby that you know or just something that you do on the side or some part of your life and you really want to have a spiritual life you know that it's not just something you're you're toying with or well yeah I do all kinds of things and one of the things I do is is that I have a spiritual life but when you say I want to lead a spiritual life how do I find one ask want desire it is actually that simple that Krishna has arranged everything so that anyone who wants spirituality the doors will open to That's, that's what everything is about Desire a spiritual master who's not going to be, it's not not like, oh, here's my spiritual master, but I do whatever I want. So, you know, one has to really want. I want someone to give me guidance, somebody that I'm willing to respect and somebody that I'm willing to follow. Not just, you know, it's, oh, I have my, oh, who's your guru? Oh, I have my guru. You know, not like that. No, oh, I'm going to get a new name. You know, that's so cool. But if you, if you want the real thing, you'll get the real thing. Can one chant all day up to 64 hours? Well, that would not take all day. In isolation for liberation, or is it necessary to be initiated and associated with devotees? The only thing that's necessary for liberation is sincerity. But if you want to find ultimate reality, you will probably want to hang out with other people who help you in that. And, and chanting in isolation is very hard for most people. Could you attain perfection by doing that? Yeah, you could, but could most people do that? Long term, no. I mean, most people just aren't, aren't capable of doing that long term. And also without any, any association, without any sangha, you know, you can get off track and not know it. It's, it, it, it's easy. We've been in illusions for a long time. It's easy to fool ourselves and not realize we're fooling ourselves. It's easy to think we're doing something spiritual when we're not. So, I mean, I, I'm so happy most of the time, not all the time, but I'm so happy most of the time for the fellowship I have with other spiritual practitioners. Sometimes they drive me bananas. I'm sure sometimes I drive them bananas. And, you know, in our Hare Krishna society, we have all different levels of spiritual practitioners, and some of them are like, but you know I, I, I found that to have really good friends who are very deeply serious and by serious I don't mean that they're like Oops. in fact the people I know who are the most deeply serious about spiritual life are also the most playful people that I know the most playful and, and joyful and, and humorous and, and light people that I know but having those people in my life is the greatest benediction and I'd so, I'm, I'm just speaking for myself I so much prefer that than being out in the middle of nowhere in a cave somewhere. You know, maybe if someone has a really, really high introvert and hates people. But even then, having some sangha with one or two people sometimes. Is it necessary to be initiated? Usually. Absolutely, no. But generally, yes. It's basically a way of saying, I'm making a commitment to this process. And when getting initiated means that you're formally joining a, a school or a system of spiritual enlightenment. So could you get 
you know, PhD level knowledge without enrolling in a PhD level program. Sure, you could, but it's a lot easier if you enroll in a program. You know, I remember when I was debating whether or not to go to graduate school, and uh, I have a friend who never finished his bachelor's degree, but he worked with a PhD in writing books. He was a co-author. And when his PhD co-author passed away, the non-undergraduate had a reputation for writing on uh, his co-author. And he started getting invited to speak all over the world. He finally got an honorary PhD. But he would be presenting at scientific conferences and getting papers published in scientific journals, although he never even finished his undergrad. And when I asked, I remember when I asked him, and I said, you know, should I go to graduate school? And he said, well, why don't you just write a book? And I thought, it would probably take me about the same amount of time. You know, to get my degree or to write a book will probably take about the same amount of time. And I thought, I think getting the degree is more safe. Who knows if I'll ever get the book published, you know? So getting initiated, it's like that. You enroll in a school. And as soon as you enroll in a school, as soon as you get initiated, everyone in the school is available to help you. And because this is a transcendent school, that means even people who aren't physically present on this planet. You know, so it's like once I enrolled in school, then I got my little ID card with my little, you know, student number, and then I could use the library, you know? So I was in the education department, but when I was writing my, my thesis, I was doing a, a quantitative statistical study. So I went to the math department, and the professors in the math department were fully willing to help me. And if I hadn't been an enrolled student, they would have said, you know, who are you? But I could go to any department in the school, and any of the professors would help me, and the whole library was open. Everything in the university was available to me because I was an enrolled student. So when you get initiated, it's not just the link with your own teacher. You know, your, your initiating guru is really like your admissions officer. But the, everybody in the whole university becomes available to And, you know, you could say, well, there's truth in so many places. Okay, sure. But if you want to get a degree, you commit to learning truth from a particular place. It's not to say that the classes at, you know, Harvard are necessarily better than the classes at Oxford, but if you're going to Harvard, you follow the Harvard syllabus, and you're making a commitment. And when you make a commitment to a particular school, the school makes a commitment to you. If you don't make a commitment, then you're not getting that commitment. I said that there was a famous <coughs> philosopher who said, as soon as you commit, what's his name? I have the quote, let's see. He said, as soon as anybody makes a commitment to anything, then there's so many forces that come and help you. And initiation is like that. It's, I'm making a commitment. And then Krishna says, okay, so am I. And all these great saintly persons, both past and, and, and present, say, okay, so am I. And, and we're available to help you. So is it possible to become purely Krishna conscious without initiation? Yes. Okay. What do you have to do in this life to, of, to not repeat the mistakes achieved in your last life? Come to a higher level of consciousness? <laughs> so you see things more clearly. What does one do to become a devotee? Oh, goodness. 
ultimately completely surrender our false ego and fall in love with Krishna. In the beginning, say, I would like to at one point completely surrender my false ego and fall in love with Krishna. That's enough. When chanting, how do you increase the quality of each round? Gosh, I don't know. I try to increase the quality of every mantra. My, my main way of increasing the quality of my chanting is in the quality of my hearing and in the quality of my association. I find that what I read, what I listen to, and who I'm with directly affects the quality of my chanting and meditation. If I want to increase the quality of my chanting and meditation, I should be careful what I read, what I hear, and who I hang out with. And if I'm reading and hearing about Krishna and spiritual topics, then that naturally influences the way my consciousness goes when I'm meditating. We were actually doing all these, except the one that asked whether or not I was self-realized. All right. Um, what did we do in our last life to deserve this one? You know, that's, again, a very individual question. And it used to be that there were expert astrologers and palmists who could tell you the exact answer to that question on a personal level. And nowadays that's a little hard to get somebody who's that accurate. It's just like right now it's hard even to find good doctors, isn't it? Sorry if any of you are doctors, Right? It, it's hard to get good physical medical care. And, well, we think maybe this might be wrong with <laughs> you. So, in the same way, it's hard to get good care on this sort of a platform to find someone who actually knows exactly what we did in our past life to deserve exactly what we have in this life. And sometimes that gets revealed to us. You know, I've had certain things that were revealed to me, not everything, but certain things about certain situations that were shown to me. Ah, this is exactly what you did in the past life. Are there certain qualities passed over? Oh, definitely. So we have been the same soul. Yes, we are the same soul always. We, have, we don't have exactly the same mind. That's a subtle astral body. That changes. We carry that body, but it, it shifts and changes as we move from one form to another. It has to because the different forms that we inhabit require different psychologies. But we're the same ultimate person beyond both the body and the psychology. I think we're pretty good on time. And we actually went through everything. I'm astonished. Was that okay? Was that helpful? Okay. Is there anything anybody wanted to just ask now? Yes. It's dissolved. None at all. And the other question was, what are all the ways, or what are some of the ways that we can identify and be conscious of Krishna, Krishna's reciprocation with us? Mm. Ask. I had, a, I had a very interesting experience where I was on a plane. And I, I said, you know, Krishna, please show me that you're there in my life. And then I realized that he had ju- just done that before I got on the plane. That he already answered me. I mean, it was... Uh, it was something I was looking for and needing 
not been able to find anywhere in the world. And then all of a sudden what I had that I was making do with broke. And then right there in the airport I found what I was looking for because I needed to find something. And then I, you know, there I was there on the plane. Show me that you're reciprocating with me. And it wasn't until a couple hours later that I realized, oh, he just did, actually. So ask. It's a question of seeing things that's already happening. But he'll also do funny things. Like the one time years ago, I was here in Auckland. I remember I was uh, walking back to the place I was staying and thinking, I really like some cashew nuts. And there they were on my door. <laughs> so every once in a while he does funny things. Like that. He doesn't always, you know. But sometimes, yes. I think you just remind me of something. I was thinking of those ladus. Uh-huh. Like and I'm like I really having that craving to eat ladus and I just saw they were there. Somebody <laughs> getting it. I'm like, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he doesn't do that all the time, but sometimes. And not, not all the time. He seems to do that about the things that are not super important to us. He seems to do that about little things. It seems to be very playful. You know, Krishna is a is an eternal teenager. He has, you know, unlimited wisdom and unlimited power, which every teenager would like to have. But he's an eternally teenager, and he's very playful. So he tends particularly to do that with the things that that are fleeting thoughts for which we have no deep attachment. And the, the times when I get those sort of reciprocations, are, it's exactly like that. Some fleeting thought that I really didn't have any attachment to. And then, whoa! But I find the things I whine and scream and, and, you know, throw temper tantrums about, he doesn't respond at all. It's like, you know, you're going to have a temper tantrum about this. Sorry, I'm not even talking to you about it. And you just, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have two, two questions as well. So, first one is, for us as spiritual beings, does, does the material world or realm teach us anything positive, as in do we learn anything that we can take with us eternally that stops us from coming back down, or is it just completely a waste of time being here? Oh my. On one level it's completely a waste of time being here. It's not that we were required to come here at all. But on the other hand, being here does also help. If we want, it helps us to return to our original position and take things with us so that we won't return. If we, if we want to come back to reality and to come back to truth and never again be an illusion, then it also helps us to do that. Yes. Definitely. Because ultimately it's Krishna's energy. You know, it's not, it's not this... It's not like there's some competitor god called the devil. Material energy, although it appears to be at, at odds, it, it appears to be this, this force that keeps us in illusion and keeps us from truth and disturbs us. 
that force is is also divine and ultimately loving. It's not evil. So when we want to find truth, that force also helps us to do that. But do we need to go through that? It's, it's like, you know, you talked about it's like being addicted. You know, do you need to go through addiction and treatment in order to be sober? Well, no, you could just be sober. Yeah, the second question was one that I asked the first time I ever came here. I never really got the answer, answer that I was looking for. It's... Okay, so, so given us being born as humans and our limited sense perception our limited knowledge, our limited everything. And this potential relationship that we can have with Krishna, how do we know that him being an all-powerful being, that he doesn't just project to us that he is the all that, he is everything that exists, and that there aren't other beings that are potentially above him, alongside him, that are also existing yet not projecting their presence to us. There are other beings alongside him and with him that are also real. Many. I mean, we read about how Krishna has so many different forms and incarnations. And then there's other beings like Shiva and then who lives beyond the material universe. And then within this universe there's many higher beings that are also illusion beings like ourselves, but they're in much higher bodies, much higher realms. Uh, so no, there are. There very much are. But you're saying, how do we know that Krishna is the highest among them? Well, one answer to that would be look in the scripture. And Srila Prabhupada takes great pains in many places, to establish from the scriptures that Krishna is the highest manifestation. But you could say, well, I could find some statement in some scripture that says something different. That's it. Another answer is, what do you consider highest? And here we start leaving the realm of objectivity and going to the realm of ultimate subjectivity because our philosophy is that we are all individual persons and therefore what is the highest for each person is frankly not the same so we have a description that in Vaikuntha the residents there think that Narayan is higher than Krishna that's why they're in Vaikuntha instead of in Goloka now, Narayan is higher than Krishna if you think of the highest as being the most majestic, the most god-like god. Kingly and majestic and opulent and powerful. If you think of God, if you want to think of the highest, that's how you define highest, then Narayan is the highest. If you define the highest as the form which experiences the most variety of pleasurable relationships than Krishna's things. So, but that depends on the individual being and what do they want to experience. Do they want to experience God as he who enjoys the most variety of pleasurable relationships, the most variety of pleasures that are possible, or as, as one who's the most majestic? And the soul is drawn to that realm where... 
you know, but there is a, a, a line that under this line the beings are still in illusion and over this line the ultimate beings are, are ultimate and liberated. So if one is attracted to some higher entity who's also in illusion though less than we are, then we'd say, well, you didn't quite make it. You know, you, you, you jumped up a few steps but you're still in the prison. You haven't come to a state of enlightenment. But yeah, I mean, and even... Even in in the same realm, that the the Krishna appears a little differently to each soul. It's it's a very personal relationship. I mean, we can see in this world, you know, like my relationship with you is going to be a little different than your relationship with you, and, and we're going to right. Everyone in here, if we took one person in this room, everyone here would see that person a little differently because we're people. You know, in this world, our subjectivity is a problem. It causes a lot of conflicts. And our subjectivity is, is the result of how each of us want to exploit the world. And it, it, it's just a nasty thing. And so we think, well, if only we could all agree. If only we all, all, all saw everything exactly the same. And, of course, I always want that to be how I see things. Right? <laughs> if only everybody saw things exactly the way I see things, then it would be a lovely world. Uh, but that's not... Ultimate reality is not like that. Ultimate reality is everyone does see the absolute truth a little differently, but there's no disharmony. I, I, I read a book a while ago about one Christian minister who had an out-of-body experience. He was you know, declared dead for an hour and a half. And he went to some higher realm. I mean, I have no idea where it was. He went to some higher realm where he heard all this celestial singing and he said there were thousands of voices and instruments, and he could make out that each was an individual song, but they didn't clash with each other. So it's something like that, that each of us is going to see even Krishna a little differently. And we have a little different relationship with him. And that will be the highest for you. Again, there's an objective line where we can say anything under this line is not the highest and anything over this line is the highest. Once you cross that line, it is individual. And it's, it's according to our personal taste. How will you know you found that? I'm going to come right back to sincerity. Want it. Want, what's, want the highest possible expression of your ultimate self and don't be willing to settle for anything less and if truth is benevolent and if truth isn't benevolent we're in a lot of trouble if truth is benevolent <coughs> bless you then if you want to find the highest possible expression of yourself you will find it It's what Krishna wants to give you. So as soon as one wants it, then there's immediately some reciprocation. But we, we don't say that everyone in the Hare Krishna movement who attains perfection is going to attain to exactly the same destination. We don't say that. They're going to attain to the destination according to their awakened state of enlightenment. 
and, and their their desires that our our real spiritual desires start to manifest as we as we remove the illusion, and then you start to feel oh, I I want to to serve the Lord like this. Is that all right? Thank you. But there are there are many. many. Within this universe, there are many. And, and beyond, in the ult- ultimate reality, Krishna has unlimited forms. Unlimited. It's not just simply an intellectual conviction or a Shastra conviction that Krishna is the highest. It also has to be an attraction from the heart. And Krishna has different moods. He has one mood in Vrindavan, one mood in Mathura, one mood in Dwarka. And some people are going to go, I, I like the Dwarka mood. That's, that's where I want to be. Other people go, I, I like the Vrindavan. And for each person, it's not just, well, I like this. But the, when, a, when the soul feels like that, their subjective feeling is this is the highest. They might say, well, yeah, okay. There's, but what I have is the highest. And they wouldn't trade it for anything. Like Hanuman worships Ramchandra, and he's not interested in worshiping the supremest Krishna. He doesn't... He doesn't so even if such a being were to come and, and preach yes it says in the scripture Krishna is the highest in their heart they'd be going from me you follow yeah. one of the many things I really like about this philosophy it's, it's very very personal it's not it's not a Okay, all of you are going to heaven and you're all having the same experience in heaven there. And, you know, just. Come on, if, if every... Are those... Is that a real tree? What yeah, is that? Yeah, is that real? Is that real? Yeah. Is it real? Yeah. All right, let's look at that for a minute. Do you see any two leaves that are exactly the same? On the same tree? Same little bush. There's no two leaves that are exactly the same on one plant. What kind of a creator do we have? And then all the varieties of leaves, that's not just utilitarian. You don't need one shape of maple leaf and one shape of oak leaf. Why? There's no, there's no you know, survival need for all the varieties of shapes of leaves from one species to the next. What to speak of on one tree? Krishna likes individual A lot. He makes every snowflake different. Why? Who looks at them? Who cares? He must care. Every snowflake is different from every other snowflake. On this one little planet, I mean, just like, why? Why bother? You know, in our modern day, we don't like that. We're like, let's do factory. All parts the same. And he's not like that. It's like everyone's different. It's all right? Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.